This is the Fixed Plasm podcast, dissecting fiction for role-playing inspiration. And I'm Ralph. So this episode I'm going to talk about not a cyberpunk novel, but a novel that is brilliant and is also contemporary with cyberpunk. Published in 1989, the edition I have is printed in 1999. It is Jeff Ryman's The Child Garden. Now, this is a book of two distinct halves. The first is more linear and explores the life of our protagonist, Melina Shebush, in a future London, and her romance with Rolfa, a genetically engineered person, in this case a polar bear with a talent for opera. And the second book has a, a main plot of Melena's attempts to put on a production of Dante's Divine Comedy using Rolfus music, but it also has a lot of other things going on. The narrative shifts back and forward in time, and we explore a lot of different things about Melena's past, why she is so special, and how the world is so strange and so different to the one we know. So, like any episode, I'm going to talk about the plot and setting, and then I'm going to talk about a few themes that come out of it, and finally, there'll be a role-playing bit. Part 1. Synopsis Now, before I get into the plot, I need to talk about the world-building, otherwise this is going to get quite confusing. The world has this tremendous consistency and depth. It's not an extrapolated near future, because it's too far in the future. I don't think a year's given, but I suspect that it's maybe two centuries into the future, given some of the characters who are supposed to be unusually long-lived, which is an interesting plot point in itself. Now, I'll start with the blurb on the back of the book. It reads, quote, In a semi-tropical London, surrounded by paddy fields, the people photosynthesize. The consensus, a vast DNA unit, oversees the country. The young are raised in child gardens and educated by viruses which control their behaviour. Nonconformism is treated. Information, culture, law and politics are now biological functions. This is the story of Lucy, the immortal tumour, Joseph the postman whose mind is an information storehouse for others, and Melena, an incredible musician who has a secret lost even to herself. Melena is resistant to viruses. It will make her one of the most extraordinary women of her age. Her secret is hidden somewhere in the child garden. So this is a world where the rising global temperatures mean that London has become a subtropical climate and there's an actual barrier reef, as in a reef grown from coral, keeping out the rising sea. Cancer has been cured, but with the side effect that life expectancy is halved due to the way that cancer cells actually develop proteins that the body needs for longevity. People simply drop dead on the street sometimes. Many people photosynthesize for sustenance, something that gives them a purple complexion. Note that our point of view character, Melena, is an historical actor, and so has to eat the traditional way to preserve her pale complexion, because people in the past weren't purple. As people grow, they're given viruses which provide them with all the kinds of information they need about the world around them, and they learn at a a vastly accelerated rate. And in this regard, Melena is, is again special, as she's rejected the viruses with a number of consequences, one of which, in fact probably the most significant, is that she's had to acquire knowledge by reading. So she was reading Plato at age six, and yet she still felt that she was lagging behind the other children who could call really obscure and quite sophisticated prose and facts just to mind, thanks to the viruses. And the other thing the viruses do is they give you the context behind objects and various bits of information. Now, this was written a lot in 1989, as I mentioned earlier. 
But doesn't that sound an awful lot like a biological version of augmented reality? Now, the key about viruses is the communication with the consensus, a sort of viral hive mind that reads citizens and, in some cases, corrects their personality defects. But Milena's resistance to the viruses means that she can't be read and instead she's she's placed in her future career role more or less blindly, or so it seems. And she ends up working in the theatre in the pit, as it is called, which is the, that is central London, the pit, a place where the architecture of centuries past has been preserved and restored. As far as we know, modern construction technology is biological. Most buildings are, are grown Spaceships are grown and organic, they're living. By contrast, old building materials, as well as other consumables, like um, paper, are fantastically valuable. So you've got this London that's uh, a living history project in the middle of what would look like a very strange, futuristic, organic conurbation. Not that we actually see that very much. We mainly only see London and the, the rice paddies around it. Now, although paper as I said, is, is valuable. No one has the same concept of wealth. This is not a capitalist society. It's a communist society. It's a communist state. There's no brands. There's no corporations. Um, although, actually, there are a couple of things that hark back to previous ages of man where corporations existed. For example, Melena lives in a block of flats in The Shell, which is the Shell building, probably the Shell Global headquarters on the south bank of the Thames. There's a sense of communal ownership, and so things that are valuable must be preserved and shared. They, they can't be squandered. Everything is otherwise regulated by the consensus, including, as mentioned before, attitudes and personalities. Underscoring all of this, Marxist utopia is Malena's chosen expletive of Marx and Lenin. There is some concept of you know, work and remuneration. For example... Rolfer's family, the genetically engineered humans who actually are polar bears, do mining work in the Antarctic that no one else can do. And they are actually, they are focused on wealth and commerce. They also are immune to viruses because the body temperature of a polar bear is too high and it, and the viruses won't take. So polar bears can't be red either. And they can't photosynthesize, so Rolfer needs to eat. But I'm getting ahead of myself a bit. Um, I suppose I should talk about the plot. In the first book, Melena meets Rolfer, the genetically engineered person, polar bear, and falls in love with her. Uh, and falls in love with her music, because Rolfer has this incredible talent for opera. This is a future where the preservation of art is quite important to people, but there's also the attitude that everything that's worth doing has already been done. So convincing people of the merit of new music is difficult. It's, it's a challenge, at least on an individual level. Later, it's actually the consensus that decides that Rolfer's music is worth broadcasting to the entire world. Melena helps Rolfer get away from her abrasive family. When she does run away, there's a bit of a problem. Because Rolfer can't photosynthesize and has a body temperature too high for viruses, she's actually at a real risk of starvation unless she can get some sort of gainful employment for uh, some sort of stipend so that she can eat. So what happens is Malena contrives to get Rolfer a job in the zoo, this um, historical art preservation project where she can practice her music. And in doing so, Rolfer must be made 
more human. So she's read by the consensus, her body temperature is lowered and she's subjected to viruses. And so it goes, Rolfa is read and placed and she's transformed, the opera is written and eventually she leaves Milena. Now in the second book, Milena's attempting to get the opera actually performed as part of a, a show, um, making a performance of Dante's Inferno scored to Rolfa's music and she comes up against the resistance to the establishment saying that no 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 um, there's no point looking in new looking at new music because it's all been done it's when the consensus steps in and says yes Dante's Inferno must be presented to the world with this music that Milena succeeds so the narrative goes backwards and forwards in time uh, jumping to various locations one of the points is Milena's childhood as an orphan in Czechoslovakia where she grows up amongst children who are, as expected, conditioned by the viruses where she isn't, and this isolates her. Another point is uh, when she goes into space at the behest of the consensus, because that is how the opera is going to be broadcast to the entire world from orbit. She goes up in a massive organic ship, crewed by her future husband, although their relationship is more of a, a convenient coupling than any real attraction go backwards and forwards and encounter some of the other characters who've been mentioned. So, for example, there's Lucy, who is a tumour, that is, somebody who actually has cancer and is, as a result, extraordinarily long-lived. Supposedly, Lucy is about 150 years old. She has, uh, and this is one of the ways that we date the novel, that she has a turn of phrase that marks her out as a cockney from the 1950s. So, yeah, maybe we're sometime in the early 22nd century by now. The character Thrawn McCartney is a, a hollow engineer who Melina gets in touch with because the, the performance requires generating holographic images in 3D space and Thrawn has access to a machine that she works because that's her talent and the machine is, the, of course, the property of everybody but Thrawn sees it as belonging to her and is incredibly generous of Melena when Melena shows a talent for operating it and this becomes one of the first of many occasions when Thrawn harasses her for the reason that she feels Melena has somehow has unfairly dismissed Thrawn's talents. So Thrawn is a big narcissist and also probably the biggest individual villain in the story. As Mike Stone, who is this slightly childish American pilot of a, a Christian fundamentalist spaceship, this, this organic ship that... Um, Melena travels in to look up, look upon the world from orbit and eventually he's also her husband although not exactly her lover he does bear her child however as Jacob the post person his task is to remember everything he's like a it's like walking random access memory he remembers everything he's told and then he gives the and then he gives the messages to other people a little bit like um, a mentat from Dune but without the calculation is the way I imagine him, has got some sort of uh, incredible ability of recall. And there's another character called Al the Snide, who's a sort of telepathic private investigator, first coming on the scene because he is looking for Rolfa on behalf of Rolfa's family when she goes on the run with Melina. I suppose this telepathy is the reading of certain biological markers, and um, uh, it's as much a, an empath as a telepath. So there's a, there's a lot of colour in this world as well, that sort of Biotech is the answer to almost everything from, you know, growing buildings out of coral to sending people into space. And all the while, there's a sort of ruined future landscape reminiscent of J.G. Ballard, except it's not, you know, post-apocalyptic. It's just very different. 
the humans are still a sophisticated organized society and a global society is just very different from what we would expect today it would possibly seem a bit less strange if the pit which is this preservation project of old london wasn't there so it would be a weirder story if it all took place in this futuristic forest of, of living buildings amongst a population that you know just sucked up the sun all day like lotus eaters but it's not that there's a sort of profound sense of the past and and efforts to preserve art and literature and history. The central to the plot is the idea of a central governing consensus. So what this is, is a hive mind of the collective thoughts of thousands, if not millions, of 10-year-old children. So kids are read at the age of 10, and their personalities, in part or in whole, are absorbed by the consensus. And bear in mind, because lifespans are shorter children develop much more quickly because of the viruses. So, you know, they're intellectually developed, although maybe not mature at that age. Anyway, the kids are read at age 10, and it's effectively making a sort of, well, it's a recording, so it's like an artificial intelligence, a sort of, uh, an artificial intelligence of a gestalt of a load of children, although they're children who haven't really had a childhood. A big part of the stuff behind the scenes is what the consensus wants. The actions it takes affect Milena directly. For example, you know, it sanctions the broadcast of the Divine Comedy, and it more or less takes control of her life. Throughout the story, she doesn't have a lot of freedom. There, there is an external plot, though, and towards the end we kind of build up to what seems like an apocalyptic event. One of the things that happens uh, is rogue viruses are moving amongst the population and, for example, infecting them with an uncontrollable stammer, meaning that people have to communicate by singing rather than speaking. Uh, there's an accompanying hysteria as well with that, which um, manifests as people washing everything with coffee because supposedly coffee inhibits the viruses. I don't know if that's actually true, but I'd be interested. For a novel that jumps back and forward in time a lot and, and at some point seems quite languid and dreamlike, it does have a surprisingly dramatic and pacey ending as well. I think I've said enough about the plot um, without actually spoiling anything, so I'm going to just stop there. I hope you like the sound of it, because I really think that more people should read it. Um, it hits all the targets of prose, plot, and content, and, and you think that what SF should do, it should extrapolate scientific and social states and show the effect on the human condition. And this book really delivers, in my view. Um, yeah, this is a five-star A++ recommendation. Go and read it. Part two, themes. I want to talk about the utopian and dystopian dynamic that emerges in this story. In this world, we have a consensus that rules the earth, made from individual personalities of all the children who have been read at age 10. These children have had an accelerated development forced upon them, learning from the viruses from a very early age. The consensus then decides how people should learn in the future, what they should value, and what is correct sociable behaviour. So the question I have is, does this promote diversity of thought or homogeneity? In the novel, it's obvious the, the latter. We're, we're told that the viruses kill creativity. They eradicate talent. They mean that individual artistic talent is not really a thing that people have anymore. The 
most interesting characters are the edge cases, like Melina and like Rolfer. They are both definitely artists. They feel this keenly. Now, I think it's, if you think about it, it's obvious how this happens, this eradication of creativity. So you've got a, you've got a steady uploading of minds to the consensus, which then dictates what the next generation will learn. So it's all self-fulfilling. Even before we learn that the consensus basically cherry picks the content it wants and then uploads the rest, it lacks diversity. And as a consequence, you get mutation in the consensus's viruses and such which then start to be communicated. So this is where the apocalypse starts. It's a lack of diversity. So thought and DNA and viruses are all part of the same thing. And they all stagnate and turn in on themselves. So then, if this happens, the consensus is going to have to take other measures just to preserve the status quo. This means that as it records more information, it's going to be more carefully screening everything it uploads to reject the harmful elements. So this is more likely to be, you know, refine ideas in a certain direction. Now, I'm extrapolating this a bit from the book, but here's my next thought on this on this subject. Let's say rather than stagnating, what if you introduce a diverse thought into the artificial gestalt? So it's actually an invading personality that hasn't been screened out for whatever reason. Uh, a corrupting signal goes in, gets distributed to the next generation, gets uploaded again with the next reading, gets amplified, and the cycle goes on and on. Now let's consider the consensus of individual minds, all deciding what correct thought is. You pollute that with a dissenting mind, and you've basically got a war on your hands, which, you know, could lead to all sorts of factionalism, segregation, even eugenics. The consensus could go to war with itself because someone plants the wrong personality into it. Now, this isn't the plot of this book. It's, the plot of, it's sort of the plot of another book, which is the first one we ever did, which is Ancillary Justice, where the, the overlord of the Imperial Radich is simultaneously governs through multiple bodies, all of which you assume they're you know, represent the same homogenous personality, but no, actually, they are of two divergent thoughts, and they're effectively at war with one another. That is an interesting source of tension. So we're talking about, effectively, a global crisis that happens because of mankind's evolution. I went back to talking about Ballard earlier, and of course, his disaster fiction is very much, is often about man-made problems and the response to it. I think there's there is a similarity there because in this case the consensus is man-made and it's been designed to make everything better and fairer and to preserve humanity and clearly there's a there's a big risk that it's going to fail this utopian experiment so i think the next thing i want to talk about is the bigger picture and the previous episode on autonomous we talked about corporate totalitarianism sort of you know those could be individual factions in your overall cyberpunk global theater powerful certainly and you know comparable to nation states and of course you know that's aligned with the fractopian vision that more corporations would get involved in global government but the child gun's an interesting contrast because it's a totally homogenous 
communist superstate. It has no competitors. There's no other alternative. There's some hints of, hints of a little diversity of thought in terms of religion, but certainly no political force to challenge it. It is everything. Its philosophy is absolute, more or less. Now, in RPGs, uh, things usually happen on a human scale, and, and often the characters can't affect governments and nations, but they're still a really important ingredient to the setting because they provide depth and credibility and you know verisimilitude. People like that word. Also, far from being complicated, the bigger picture is often really simple. Say in the case of the child garden, one of the main themes is death. And I'll get to that in a moment, by the way. Now, thinking about indie games du jour, um, powered by the apocalypse especially, um, there's often a focus on a specific theme. That was something I talked about in the last episode. I think it's a very good thing that you can tie everything together. You know, revenge is, is an example theme. So what I'm really saying is that when you come to think about the theme for the games, you don't just integrate it horizontally and tie all the individual plots together. It should be a theme that is integrated vertically as well. It needs to repeat as you go up the order of magnitudes of scale, as you go up from factions to corporations to global entities to planets to whole races. I think there's always going to be things going on that are beyond the character's influence. I think that it's very important that things aren't beyond the character's comprehension. I think it's very important for characters to have a sense of place in their universe. And having a theme, a strong theme, is probably one way to achieve that. So speaking of themes and bigger pictures, I also want to talk about big questions, like existential questions. The classic existential question of cyberpunk is what does it mean to be human when your body can be rebuilt and your consciousness recorded and you know you you get these technologies in the child garden immortality of a sort is possible but you know cyberpunk and post cyberpunk specifically is really about cheating death in a lot of cases it equates immortality with freedom so you're, you're freed of time. You can do all these things, be who you want to be, exist in any age. Now, in Jeff Ryman's book, In the Future London Here, to be read and then uploaded to the consensus means immortality of that copy. But it also means that that copy is constrained and imprisoned. It is locked in with other people, which it has to argue with argue a position for so you imagine all these individual minds in the consensus advocating for certain things and that must be exhausting to be constantly required to have an opinion not to be free to experience and enjoy your own immortality that's horrifying that's a common motif about the the perils of immortality of course i think uh, one of the examples i can think of is the five doctors in doctor who where the um, the end game is it's all to do about who can get the, uh, the the boon of immortality granted by Rassilon, I think, when they find his tomb. You find out that, uh, well, the bad guy finds out that immortality means being turned into a living statue. It's that kind of gotcha. Anyway, 
post-cyberpunk is interested in making death obsolete, right? And thus the protagonist has time. In the child garden, it's the reverse. There's so little time for everyone. And as a result, people live these really compressed lives. Childhood's been all but eradicated. There's actually a character who refers to childhood as a disease that they've cured. And so characters are already on the clock and they're very, very aware of what they must achieve. Or at least there is a social pressure to be relevant to achieve things. Now in RPGs, of course, we're usually thinking of a time frame of weeks that these games happen over. Which is why, whilst I think that um, GURPS Cyberpunk having a terminal illness disadvantage is kind of neat, um, I think it's actually quite hard to, to make that a real disadvantage. Because the idea is that you're constrained by time. Characters are rarely constrained by time. Because if you have a character with a terminal illness, and the GM then dictates that, okay, time's passed, we've, we've moved on a series of weeks, your character has died. I think you can argue that it's, it's a fair cop if you've taken the disadvantage and the 75 point, uh, point bonus. But on the other hand, we generally don't really think it's acceptable for the GM just to declare a PC dead. So I don't really think it works bringing people close to death and having this binary, you're in the game, now you're out of the game. So what if, instead of simply dying, when a character dies, they transcend? Ryman's World describes this process of being read and uploaded uh, to the consensus, or being transformed into an angel. Uh, that's another example, kind of like a, the next step in consciousness. And these, these angels then get tasked with doing things like um, extrasolar missions into space, that sort of thing. In this transformation, we know that the consensus edits out certain parts that it doesn't like. So let's say the consensus reads a personality at the end of death, deciding what to do with them next. And they decide that some of their personality is worth saving, but some must be discarded. So how do you roleplay that? Let's say the character is going to move on to the next stage of life to fulfill a different role in this far future. And as a consequence, they've had some of their personality edited and corrected. How does that work in a game? I'd kind of be interested to know if the, the various post-human RPGs like Eclipse Phase have any concept of, uh, you know, personality changes as a result of re-sleeving the cortical stack. Usually what we normally consider is, is just data loss, and it's normally considered to be memory loss, which is hard enough to do in itself. Arguably, changing competencies is actually easier to roleplay than, say, editing the character's memories and personal timeline because you, you then have the you don't have the conflict of player knowledge versus character knowledge, much less the worry of having to manage multiple individual plots. I mentioned earlier um, ancillary justice and the uh, the Imperial Radich. I'm not sure exactly how the, the Lord of the Radich, whose name is Ananda Mianai, which is has far too many vowels to be sensible. Um, they have multiple strands of consciousness. Uh, they're functionally immortal, but also they're basically at war with themselves. So the way that this may have happened, as I mentioned earlier, is by some kind of accidental or deliberate selective refinement of the individual personality strands and diverging. 
communication of consciousness uh, turns up in in other books like uh, Gene Wolfe's book of the New Sun, where Severian the Autarch, Severian becomes the Autarch by virtue of uh, of this um, the Alzabo, which is this drug that allows you to take on the memories of other people, and as a result, he becomes the Autarch and has access to all the memories that the Autarch has had access to. And those transform Severian. Um, that's part of what makes him such an, an unreliable narrator. But anyway, I, I digress a bit. I think the most significant thing about death in the child garden is that people are acutely aware of their own mortality. So there's a, there's this focus on the need to achieve, as I mentioned earlier. There's also a focus on basic needs. I mentioned the need to sustain oneself, to eat and drink, to a certain extent to live in the now. Milena it's worth noting, is preoccupied with her own achievements. And, and that makes sense. If you have less time, you're going to be aware of how you spend your time. So one of the other ways that you could introduce this is, is you're not really concerned about when this person's going to die, but you are concerned about what they've achieved. So you measure the life in terms of drives and the goals that you've achieved. And this is something that you can use for individual character arcs and also for scene framing. What I mean by that is that you have all of your player characters could have individual drives and they are then, and the most important thing is that they pursue those. You leave it to the players to define what is success, you know, what they want. Crucially, I, I think you need to measure these in play. You know, the use them as an actual experience track, if you will. So let's talk about the role-playing bit. Part three, the role-playing bit. One of the things I wanted to take away was mechanising this sense of urgency of a shortened lifespan. Drives are, of course, really important in the corporate example. You assume that everyone in the corporation will have a personal trajectory and they'll want to have to achieve things. I said last time I was interested in two experience tracks, one noting corporate ascent and the other personal development and letting the player decide which is more important to them. But of course the corporate ascent comes with its own benefits and has its own drawbacks. So I think the other thing I want to talk about is the bigger picture. The world that goes beyond the corporations, it's an order of magnitude higher. The worldwide climate that you're working in. As I said earlier, this can be very simple. It can be a global theme that affects everything on the macrocosmic scale as well as the microcosmic scale. And you can tag this quite easily by choosing an appropriate theme, as mentioned before. But you're going to be building towards something. And that's really for the GM to decide what you're building towards. You know, a revolution, an apocalyptic event, a new discovery, the aliens arriving all sorts of things. Governments will be interested. News outlets will be interested. Everyone will be affected in various ways. Now, I'm thinking part of this because I'm thinking about Brexit right now. It dominates the conversation. It dominates everyone's minds. Everyone's got a position on it. And if I can't do anything to affect Brexit, then maybe at least make a game out of it. Anyway, so let's say you're building towards this apocalyptic event. You can quite simply use a series of countdown clocks, and in play, one of the MC moves is to advance that clock. You may have some moves from characters which explicitly advance the clock. 
Now, of course, when you're advancing the clock, you want actually to say what's happening. So you want to think about the stages which you're going through towards the end of the world. The first stages should be some sort of, you know, foreshadowing for those in the know. Very tiny clues. As you get further up the clock, maybe you've got multiple cycles of this clock, you start to include more people, more hints of what is going on. And inevitably, those people will be the player characters who will see something and notice something. As it gets worse, things start to break out. We get evidence of the coming change in the wild. So if it's a post-apocalyptic thing, if it's the, the end of the consensus, then it's manifested by an uncontrollable stammer that's communicated as a virus. Seems fairly innocuous, but it starts to be everywhere. It could be a mass hysteria like uh, John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness. It could be sightings of strange things if you want to play the angle of alien first contact. Gradually, this is going to spread, and so you get further along towards the end stages. Events become more severe. People start to recognise them and have opinions of them. They're reported. The ideas about what's going on become more sophisticated. Now, of course... I'm not expecting the GM to do all the work. What I'm really suggesting is if you're going to advance the clock in this way and you're going to lead towards an apocalyptic event at certain breakpoints, what you should probably do is creatively ask the players what happens, what is going on, and what their interpretation is. Now, because it's a village environment, my real sense was that the, the collapse is the immediate community. And what I really wanted to see at a, at a low individual level was that as people start to explore their relationships within the village and take their stresses out on other people, they start to damage the community as a whole. So you've got the, your own little low-level doom track that is causing things to fall apart back home. But out in the world, you've got this mirror of globally things falling apart terrible things happening and it doesn't have to be the same cause you can have a breakdown of community locally you could have a breakdown of goods and services of supply chains of basic human needs globally so again coming back to this idea of integrating the themes of collapse vertically as well as the drives of the characters vertically in the themes there okay i hope you've been able to follow this because I think I just unpacked an awful lot. The next episode on this subject is going to be the last, and I'm going to wrap up and also talk about a few of the, the pieces of fiction that I could have talked about and I decided not to. And then I'll try and sum up the general idea for the role-playing game. I hope to speak to you in the near future. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, please like, share and subscribe. Give us a review on iTunes or otherwise spread the word. We're on Twitter and Facebook as well. All music in this podcast is by Chris Zabriskie. Find out more at chriszabriskie.com. <laughs> <laughs>